You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Catherine Osmond, an award-winning journalist who has worked in publishing for more than 25 years, including as a senior editor at National Geographic. Osmond's personal essays and reported articles have been widely published, including in such venues as National Geographic, The New York Times, Boston, Salon, and Fitness. Born in Arkansas, she graduated from Harvard College with a degree in English and American Literature and received her master's in writing from DePaul University. She now resides in Chicago with her husband and their three children. Catherine joins us today to talk about her new book, Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age, published by Harper Wave. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak to you. I think the best way to sort of set the book up is to quote Peter Morales, who's the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. And he says that, quote, Grace without God is a pilgrimage. Catherine Osment is one of millions who have left traditional religion only to find that not only is something missing in their lives, but they long to give their children the meaning, sense of belonging, and spiritual depth of religion. In Grace Without God, we are invited to travel with her as she searches religion, philosophy, and social science for tools to construct meaning in our time. So you describe the book as sort of a a letter to your three children. So tell us a bit about the origins of of your writing this book. Sure. The, The book really began about five years ago. My oldest child, my son, was nine years old, and it was pretty late one Friday night. The other kids were asleep, and we heard something outside our window. We lived in Boston at the time, and there was a Greek Orthodox church across from us. And he said, Mom, come look. And I came to the window, and there was this really elaborate procession going on directly in front of us. There was the police had closed off the street. Um, There were congregants from the church all holding candles, you know, dressed in nice clothes. There was a a priest in this really ornate um, flower-covered chariot-like construction with with a replica of, I think, a baby Jesus inside. And they stood right in front of our window. We could hear them through the window um, singing um, back and forth with the, the, the priest would sing part of the prayer and they would sing it back to him. And then they they moved on, you know, they finished their ritual and they moved into the into the church for more. And my son looked at me and he said, what was that? And I said, well, you know, I think it's Good Friday. I think that must be their Good Friday ritual. And that's what they do every year. And he said, well, why don't we do that? And I said, because we're not Greek Orthodox. And he said, well, what are we? And I paused for a split second and I said, we're nothing. Um, I just kind of blurted it out and immediately regretted it. It felt like the wrong answer, and it felt like I should do better than that. And so it was really that night that I started to think about, you know, what are we and how do we describe ourselves? I was raised um, Presbyterian. My husband was raised Jewish, but we had left religion really without much thought. 
and yet we we had our you know our lives and we had values and we had meaningful experiences we had community but how did we describe it it was really kind of hard for me to come up with a word for that and so I set out on the journey to figure out a better answer for my son and for my other two children and and thus um, the book right and it says every study tells us that religion makes us happier and, and healthier and more giving and it, and it connects us better but I think that more and more of us are doing exactly what you've described which is sort of um, dropping it really without even considering what we're dropping or why we're dropping it. And I, I really think that this book was a great, it was a great meditation on, on what we do with the space that's left after religion. But another question, and this, this is a little bit deep, but what do you mean by grace? When you say grace, how do you use that word? So I mean it as a sort of a, a upwelling of feeling of being, I think if I were religious, I would call myself blessed, um, but I don't use that word. I use it as a sort of a feeling of gratitude um, to the world here and now and to the people in my life and just a feeling of, of peace that comes over me when I look very carefully at all that I have. Um, and instead of feeling that it was given to me by a supernatural power, I sort of leave that question out there to be answered perhaps some, some later time. Right. Um, but I, I really have turned my focus and, and part of the journey of this book was realizing that instead of, you know, looking outward, it's all about you know, looking here and now on on earth and around me and in humanity. And I, I really discovered that if I do that, I have this great feeling that I think a lot of the religious people feel perhaps when they think about God um, giving them life or creating the universe. Right. You, you say that, that grace comes from knowing that to be alive and conscious in this world is a rare gift, and that if we're open to it, we can see that grace is all around us with or without God. So I think that's a rather encouraging um, idea. So yeah. take us so take us through us. So you you determined, all right, I'm I'm gonna go off and I'm gonna study this further. Where did you start? Well I started you know most um, most such projects start with Google. So I did that. <laughs> you know, I went to the library, I went to Google. But one of the first places I found and it was really great because it was about um, a five-minute walk from my house, was the humanist community at Harvard. And that's where I realized there have been a lot of people asking this question for a long time and actually doing something about it. And I was sort of, you know, I'd had this question, but I hadn't really figured out a way to um, come together with others. And here there are these, they were the first humanist community I was introduced to, but then I found them all around the country. Um, that were really coming together to address this need that people who left religion had. And so I went and I spoke with the um, humanist chaplain at Harvard, Greg Epstein, and I became sort of a, an ongoing member. I would bring my kids to events that they would do. I did some of the events just myself. Um, and we've since moved away from, from the Boston area. But I would say that I, I got my sort of my primer on humanist community through them and came to realize, and this was kind of crucial for me, that I wasn't the only one asking this question. Mm -hmm. And this really is a phenomenon that is happening across the country right now where 
um, you know, it used to be that only 8% of the country described itself as religiously unaffiliated. Starting in 1990, that number rose and rose and rose, where it's now nearly 25%. And so that's a pretty quick change. And it happened between the time I graduated from college and the time I sort of entered this middle parenting period. And so I feel that my generation is really at the threshold of this big change. Many of us, if not most of us, were raised with religion, but we aren't raising our kids that way. And so I started to find these pockets um, in the U.S. of people who were trying to fill that, that hole that some people are feeling. And not everyone feels it, but some people do. And I do think that those folks are found in pockets, right? We haven't we haven't been able to so far rally around you know sort of one central conversation, which it seems like this book has the possibility of of, of starting. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention some of your. I like your your chapter headings, and and I'm going to read them, and you can tell me a little bit about your thoughts behind it. Uh, I'll start with morality without a map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is one that comes up, especially when parenting. I mean, if if you take your kids to Sunday school on the weekends, there's a very clear map. You know, there are Ten Commandments, or there's the Golden Rule, or there are all these other sort of structured markers and sayings, and even there are holidays set up to help you atone for your sins um, or think about what something you might give up. Um, and so the idea in that chapter was to look at, well, what if you don't have that map? How do you come up with what your values are? And not only that, but figure out a way to articulate them. And then another big part of this book was me figuring out how to articulate what I do believe and what I did value. And, you know, before I sort of became more conscious of this idea of, of being a humanist, um, I didn't verbalize to my children what I really believed. And mm-hmm. so that, that was a big part of coming up with your own map. Uh, but part of that's got to be joining with others. And so, um, you know, morality is about how we treat others, how we operate within our communities, how we give to our communities. And religions are really good at community service and volunteering. And so a huge part of morality without a map for me has been trying to get my kids involved in giving back to the community and realizing it's not all about, you know, getting A's in school and doing really well on the basketball team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, there's got to be something else to give our lives a sense of purpose and meaning. And tell us about Almost Church. Well, so that was a chapter um, where I attended uh, a really, I thought, wonderful ritual with the Harvard Humanist community. It was on Easter, and it was a spring ritual um, led by Mary Johnson, who's a wonderful writer and secular humanist leader. And it was a way to give people something that they may be missing on Easter Sunday. I had loved Easter as a child. We had gone to church and gotten dressed up, and and I had found sort of our watered-down version of it um, as an adult with my own kids. It felt like it was lacking. I would give them Easter baskets in the morning, and that was kind of it. We didn't do much else. And so one Sunday, I decided to go and, and check out what the Harvard Humanists do on days like that. Um, and, and, you know, Mary Johnson said very explicitly, I miss um, 
a lot of what religion gave me, and this is, I don't want to go back to it, but this is one of the things I really miss was having a special day to feel renewed and energized and, and you know, that, that I can have hope for the, the rest of the year. And so I participated in that, and it was church-like. It was on a Sunday. It was a group of people going through a ritual, but it didn't have... It didn't require anybody to profess belief in something they didn't actually believe in, and I, that was the difference. And I found it really very fulfilling and um, helpful for for the possibility for a secular humanist community. Yeah. So similarly, there's a chapter called "Make Your Own Sunday," which which is sort of an extension of this idea, right? Yes, exactly. And you know, that's another thing. You know, people say, well, you know what do you do without religion? You spend Sunday reading reading the newspaper and lying around in your pajamas. And so part of that has been to try to figure out, well, what do we do with those, those free moments? Because religion gives you a real structure uh, on the weekend. It gives you time to to reflect and put down your laptop or your cell phone and 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 come together with other people. And so what is it that you might do if you are no longer a practicing religious person? And so a lot of people go to nature or they might find one of these communities or they might do some community service. And it's all about making uh, your own version, but not so much so that it's meaningless. You know, you sort of have to think about, well, what is the value that I want to cultivate here? And I I met some people along the journey that were doing really interesting things. There's one woman in Minnesota who they specifically, um, every Sunday, they sit down, she and her husband, and there are three kids, and they have their in-home, basically, Sunday school. But they're talking about really secular values that they hold dear. Um, And they'll read a book. The day that I visited, they did some meditation, and then they went outside and planted seeds. Um, And it was a lovely two hours of really together family time. So things like that, or I, I tried to bring readers into other people's lives to get ideas about what they might do to make Sundays special. Now, I, I hear so much, you know, you're articulating so much of the benefits of organized mm-hmm. religions and the things that you're, that we're all sort of looking for to replicate, but leaving mm-hmm. some of the thornier stuff out. You know, what do you say when people say, well, that's really kind of a cop out because what you're trying to do is just take the easy and the approachable stuff and leave the challenging and mysterious stuff, you know, at the doorstep. Do you, do you have a response to that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say that all the studies that show, you know, how religion is really so good for us and making us happier and healthier and all that, it must them come back to the fact that people who are religious are congregating with others. And some studies show that the ones that go to church and sit in the back and don't talk to anybody actually don't reap those benefits. Mm. I would say that really what I was talking about was figuring out ways to connect beyond ourselves. I think the real risk in our age is that we're all going into our own little um, worlds with our with our phones and we can really pick and choose um, you know, curate our news, so we're just reading what we want to read, we're just living near people that we want to be near. And one thing that I think religion was 
is really good at is getting people together in a way that they might not otherwise. And so really what I was talking about in the book was figuring out ways to connect to community, to others, really to your own sort of awareness of what's going on around you. Um, you know, and in terms of leaving behind what's challenging, yeah, I guess that's, um, you know, I think there are many ways to be challenged. I'm challenged by, you know, learning and about others. I'm challenged by work that I do. I'm challenged by um, understanding the science of what's behind, you know, how we got here in the first place. And so I think there's a lot of ways to be challenged. And I don't, I don't know that if, you know, if you don't believe in God, you need to put yourself through that. Exactly. You know, right. I, I think that, that we're used to that. That's been the dominant ethos for millennia that um, you are religious. And in fact, you know, a lot of the language around the non-religious, um, it speaks to that. It's always, you know, spoken in, in terms relative to religion as if you're missing something. Um, and so I think that the trick really is to say, well, you know, we don't have to do it that way. Mm -hmm. That's the way it's mm -hmm. always done, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we can have, you know, challenging and fulfilling lives without that. So let's talk a little bit about the actual writing of the book, because I, I always ask questions about that. So, you, you know, you've mm -hmm. written a lot and you're, you've been doing this for a very long time. But often the experience of writing a full-length book is quite different from, from anything else. So how, how did that go? <laughs> it was, I say that it was the biggest act of faith that I've ever committed. <laughs> Ironically. I had, yeah, I had to believe in the unseen. I really had to believe that it was going to become a book one day. And there were many, many times where I was hopeless and despondent. I mean, it's a huge topic, huge and the burden of that, I think, was often difficult. I'm, there's so much written about this right now in terms of articles and statistics. There's so much coming out because it's just it's so timely that I felt that I couldn't always keep up with everything. And at one point I realized um, I have to put parameters around this and then go deep within those parameters instead of telling the entire sweeping story of the loss of religion among this group of people in the U.S., which would take, you know, 10, 15 years to write. I'm going to tell um, my journey and the people I met along the way who inform my journey and all of the reading and, and, you know, the amazing social scientists I interviewed. And I'm going to help that. I'm going to have them help me deepen this, but I, I've got to keep on track here. I'll, I'll never finish it. But it really was this act of faith where I felt, you know, there's that famous saying that you can, writing a novel is like driving in the fog. You can only see a couple feet in front of you, but you'll get there. There were many, many times where I thought, or you'll crash into a tree <laughs> and you will not make it. And so I just had to keep getting up and writing it. And, and part of it, what kept me going, honestly, was meeting these people across the country that I interviewed who were so giving of their time and so just humble and helpful and wanting people to know because there's still this 
you know, a popular vision of atheists or non-religious people as immoral or they yeah. don't care about anything. And they really want people to know, you know what, we're doing really the most that we can to raise good kids. And we don't want our kids to be told they're going to hell when they die because they don't believe in God. You know, I met uh, just so many great people. And I think that really kept me going. Every time I, I, I mentioned my book to someone, someone shared a story with me and I, it kept just reminding me how important the story was to tell. And I think that's what kept me going. Yeah, indeed. I'm always curious what people are reading while they're writing. I would guess in, in your case, you're, you're continuing to read the research and the scholarly articles, or did you, did you do something entirely different? Did you read, did you read fiction while you were writing to just sort of relax yourself? My favorite um, books are memoirs. And so I read a lot of memoirs in between the studies because the studies can get pretty dense. And what I wanted to do really was, what I try to do in my writing is always tell a story. And so I didn't want it to be so heavy with data and studies that it didn't feel like a story was told with a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. So, um, you know, I I love Devotion by um, Danny Shapiro, any of those um, you know, spiritual memoirs. I read Anne Lamont for inspiration, um, and she's more more religious than I am. But I still just to, to remind just, yeah, myself so to write with some voice and yeah. to write with um, a, a real um, care for language. I think those are two of my favorites. I try to distinguish between the writing process and the publishing, you know, the, the, the publishing process. And so I asked folks sort of what, what surprised and delighted them the most about being published and what, you know, was the most frustrating and, and challenging part of, of the long process of being published. So, yeah, let's see. Well, I, I don't feel that I've been published quite yet. <laughs> so I, I might know what the most surprising part is soon. Um, you know, I think the, most, the, the best part of it so far is that it gives you sort of um, a feeling that you've, you've sort of gotten these sort of bona fides, I guess. I mean, when I can call people on the phone, and I had this – to some degree as a journalist as well. But when you can call people on the phone and say, I'm writing a book about this for HarperCollins, it it really helps open doors. And Mm -hmm. so there is something about being part of this process that's very legitimizing to the outside world. And then it just sort of makes your life easier, I think, especially when you're doing a lot of research. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's nothing like having a deadline, too, (laughs) to get um, yourself motivated to actually turn the drafts in. And having a team of people, it's not just you anymore sitting in your office writing an essay and sending it out to five different editors hoping someone will take it. You've got an editor and a you know, the marketing person, the publicity person, and people are really helping you make this and shape this into a beautiful book. And that's that's something as a freelance writer, I think, you know, a lot of people more and more are freelancers as opposed to working for a magazine. Um, that feels really nice to be part of a team again. That's good. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we've been speaking to Catherine Osmond, who's the author of Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age, available wherever ebooks, audiobooks, and print books are sold. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. 
And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.